It's my great joy to invite you this morning to open your copy of God's perfect and precious Word to Titus chapter 3. We're going to look together at verses 4 through 7 as our focus this morning as we continue our Christmas series in the book of Titus as uh, we keep hearing the announcement that He appeared. Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. I want to invite you to stand in reverence for the reading of the words of our the perfect and precious words of our sovereign God, and stand knowing that in the Scripture and in the Scripture alone, we know the true story of the world. Titus chapter 3, beginning in verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You so much for this Lord's Day. I thank You for the songs we've sung. I thank You for the voices of the children. I thank You for the testimony of Your faithfulness in giving. And I thank You, Lord, that we can open Your Word to this this precious portion that teaches us so much about what it means to live in this fallen world in a way that is faithful to Christ and His Gospel. Oh Lord, change us all today. Some by putting their faith in Christ for the first time. But all of us, by walking more faithfully with Jesus Christ because we have met You in Your Word and You never leave us the same. We pray it in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen. You may be seated. The reality of what we celebrate at Christmas, the birth of Jesus Christ, should produce a people who are defiantly kind. Defiantly kind. But you know, I'm afraid that we do not think of kindness as an important virtue, or at least we don't think about kindness as a powerful virtue virtue. We don't think about kindness as one of the ways in which we fight faithfully in the world. We sort of equate it to, yeah, that's something everybody should do. Everybody should be nice. Kindness and nice are different. Kindness is active. Nice, whatever that means, it's passive. So it's not just being nice. So we we sort of limit it to smiling, getting along with others, don't causing not causing problems, not upsetting people too much. But in the scripture, kindness is a powerful word. In fact, it is a powerful word that has been used in a way that testifies to its power that any of us are saved. Kindness is a word that acts. 
It does the beneficial for others. It does good for others. It is love displayed in the world. It is often tied to the word goodness and steadfast love. Or the Hebrew uh, translation of that, hesed. Steadfast love. That it, it is a match to what we get when we talk about this sort of kindness. In Romans chapter 2, verse 4, it says, it is the kindness of God that is meant to lead you to repentance. That's active. The kindness of God has sought us out. The kindness of God is at work in the world by His grace capturing sinners, giving the gift of faith, bringing to repentance. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul defends his apostolic authority. Let let me let you know, I've been called by God to this role, he says. And in chapter 6, verse 6 of 2 Corinthians, one of the ways he defends his apostolic authority is to say he is kind. Power. Active. We find out in Galatians 5.22 that kindness is a fruit of the Spirit. In other words, there's a a way we understand kindness in light of the Scripture that is informed by the Spirit of God. And it's birthed in a believer's life as we reflect this attribute of God in a unique way, in a way we could not understand the word kindness apart from the fruit of the Spirit who comes to us by grace. But you know, even though we tend not to think of kindness as powerful, I think we all kind of know how powerful it really is. Uh, Just think about um, this. Have you ever noticed how difficult it is to, to talk bad about somebody? To talk negatively about somebody? To look down upon someone who is genuinely and sacrificially kind to you? I mean, it's so obvious that they're just doing what they're doing because they're kind, not to get anything out of you. And and there have been times in not my better moments where someone did an act of kindness to me and I almost wish they hadn't. Because I couldn't feel about them the way I wanted to feel about them in light of this. It just changes. Somebody showers genuinely sacrificial kindness upon you, your disposition toward them changes. If even a simple act of kindness from another person changes us, how much more when we talk about God's kindness? The perfect one who is kind to sinners. Like us. If a person's act of kindness has an effect upon us that it changes the way we think, how much more when we come to Titus chapter 3, verse 4, and it says that kindness appeared? Chapter 3, verses 4 through 7 is one sentence in the Greek. It is the proclamation of the gospel it's rooted he says in the kindness of God and then he goes on to explain what that looks like 
But one of the things I want you to see before we look at that section is I want you to see how it's sandwiched. There is something before and something after. And what we have before and after is important because it's how we relate to people in the world. He begins by talking about how we relate to ruling authorities. The attitudes and dispositions that we often possess toward them and toward others. And then on the other side of this, beginning in verse 9, he talks about all of the, all of the things that that leads us into. Look with me at Titus chapter 3, verses 1-3. through 3. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. To be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and get this, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. By the way, in this context, he's talking about all people, and he's talking even about rulers, rulers you disagree with. I wonder how we're doing on that. Show perfect courtesy toward all people. And then he says in verse 3, for we ourselves were once, he's writing this to believers, We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Now you'll remember that that Paul has sent Timothy to the Isle of Crete, and it's a very difficult work. By their own admission, Cretans were gluttons and liars and had all kinds of problems and they, they looked to the so-called gods of their age and, and their trickery was something that they thought that they would embody in their lives. It is a very, very difficult work. And he says here that to the believers, there's a different way to live. Now, is there anything about speaking evil Quarreling, foolishness, disobedience, being led astray, slaves to passions and pleasures, malice, envy, hated by others and hating one another that, that, that speaks of kindness, gentleness. No. The picture here is the opposite. It's being curved in on yourself. Self-centered. That makes one prideful. And we we lash out and we do these things because we are so insecure that that we take some sort of comfort in trying to lash out at others and that gives us some sense of identity. Now look down, beginning in Titus chapter 3, verses 9-11. through He says, But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, and by the way, this is genealogy, looking back where you're from so you can claim some sort of ethnic superiority. By the way, these things have not gone away. Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. You see, this is the way of the world, he says. You've been called out of this, he says. This gospel that's sandwiched in between in in Titus chapter 3, verses 4 and 7, and then an application in verse 8, this gospel that's sandwiched in between brings a fundamental change in one's life so they interact with ruling authorities differently. 
They interact with the people around them who hold all kinds of beliefs differently. They order themselves differently. I mean, if we were to take this description and put it uh, as a litmus test on the average person's conversation with people they disagree with, on the average conversation, let's say, on political issues, on social media, and what we, we see is all of this stuff. What we rarely see is show perfect courtesy toward all people. You know what? We think kindness is weak. And we think its opposite is strong. Somebody else thinks that way. Satan. We either agree with the Scripture and what Jesus says, or we don't. See, the Gospel is to reorder all of our lives. In chapter 1, he says it's to, to reorder the church and appoint elders in the churches and deal with the problems of dissension in the churches. Remember, do it, he appeared. In chapter 2, it's those relationships within the church. The older men and the, the older women and the younger women and all of that. And he says, hey, do that. Order it in light of the gospel. Remember, he appeared. And now he talks about all of the relationships we have in the world. The, the, the public, civic life that we have. And the communal life we have with all kinds of people. The culture, the public square. And he says it should be ordered by the gospel. He calls us to be good citizens. He calls us to obey the ruling authorities unless we just absolutely can't because of the will of God expressed in the Word of God. We are to do good work, he says. And that's with reference to the community. We are to be gentle. The, the word means reasonable. We are to show perfect courtesy toward all people. In other words, we are not to be self-centered and prideful, but we are to be kind. And defiantly so. Why? Defiantly? Because only here are you going to hear that this kindness is more powerful than the opposite. And so you say, everybody else can live the way they want. But as for me, because of this gospel, I'm going to live defiantly kind. Look at verse 4 of chapter 3. But when, by the way, refer back to verse 3, for we ourselves once were, once foolish. Now, this is what you were believers. But when something's changed, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, was made visible, was there in the incarnation, was the fulfillment of the Gospel promise. There was indeed the seed born of woman who would crush the head of the serpent. There He is. Jesus, loving kindness made visible in a manger, in the flesh. The message of His loving kindness had been heard and promised. And, 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 and now though, here it is. It has become visible. 
It can be seen and touched. Kindness acts. God the Son takes on human flesh, born of a virgin to save sinners. Oh, the goodness and loving kindness of God. Do you see this? Kindness is tied in the New Testament with patience and and grace and and it's one of the defining aspects of love. And it is, is free. If it is constrained to do it, it's not kindness. If you show up at my house and say for $20 I will mow your grass and you mow the grass and I give you $20, that's not kindness. If you show up at my house and you just mow my grass, that's kindness. It's free. We choose to be kind. We've been liberated to be kind. And it's rooted in this reality of God's kindness to us that is made visible in the birth of Jesus of Nazareth, who is God the Son made flesh. Well, what does it mean to say that kindness appeared? He goes on to describe it here. Look at the first part of verse 5. Not only can we say kindness appeared, but we can say He saved us. Look at that first phrase. He saved us. The incarnation declares yes to all of the Gospel promises. Yes! This is what He promised. This is what He's done. It implies the whole sequence of events of crucifixion and resurrection and ascension and sure return. But yes, there is the promise of God. He saved us. This is the hinge verse. This is a demonstration of this kindness of God. What has He come? Why did He appear? He appeared to save us. This is the summary. Three words and says so much. But I need to ask something really important. When we say He saved us, are you in the us? Can you say, as you sit here this day, He saved me? What could be more important? He saved me. The goodness and kindness of God. He appeared. He appeared to save sinners. Have you put your faith in Him? Have you thrown yourself on His mercy? Have you abandoned yourself to the fact that He is the only hope of salvation? That this plan of God that involves God the Son taking on human flesh is so significant it cannot be ignored and it is your only hope. He saved us. That's what kindness, this kindness of God does when it appeared. But notice the warning, the second half of verse 5, not because of works done by us in righteousness. No. He saved us. He, He appeared. He saved us. Not by anything we've done. There's nothing we hold up to Him. It cannot be achieved by any amount of law-keeping or any amount of supposed goodness that we offer Him. Why does the Scripture go out of its way to keep saying this? Whenever Paul presents these ideas, we could go to Romans and he does the same thing. 
He talks about salvation. And then He says, not by any works done by us in righteousness. If you are saved, you can be absolutely sure you did not save yourself. You don't have the ability. You and I are sinners. The best we can do is described as filthy rags of righteousness. We needed something from outside of us. We needed someone from outside of us. We needed a deliverer. Not something that we could work up out, but something that would come from outside of us and do what we could not do. He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. Whenever we believe that, then we can know this. You don't know salvation. You don't know Christ. If you think that you've done anything to offer God, and God is accepting it for your salvation, whether it's one tiny little bit or not, then you are at odds with the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It is 100% what He has done for us. Kindness appeared and He saved us. But kindness appeared also and He mercied us. I just invent words here. He mercied us. Look at the last part of verse 5 and verse 6. But. That, that, that's the word Allah. It's the strongest word of contrast that the Greek has. But according to His own mercy. Not by works of our righteousness, but according to His own mercy. Mercy is God not giving us what we deserve. Grace is God giving us what we don't deserve in spite of what we deserve. His mercy, His pity, His compassion, His love. It's only according to His mercy. I love the words of Spurgeon here. Works of righteousness are the fruit of salvation. And the root must come before the fruit. The Lord saves His people out of clear, unmixed, undiluted mercy and grace and for no other reason. Grace gives us what we don't deserve. You don't deserve for your sins to be forgiven. You don't deserve for them not to be counted against you. You don't deserve Christ's righteousness. You don't deserve justification. You don't deserve sanctification. You don't deserve to be a citizen in heaven. You don't deserve to be an heir of God. You don't deserve to be glorified one day in a new heavens and new earth. But the bottom line is because of His mercy, you can have all of that because He saved us. And He mercied us. He explains how this mercy worked out. Look at that phrase. By the washing of regeneration. Now it's talking about the work of the Holy Spirit here. This, this washing, this cleansing. This is talking about the cleansing work of the, the Holy Spirit. Purifying our lives. Bringing us to conviction. Making us new. And it's tied here by the washing of regeneration. It means the new birth. What Jesus says is to be born again. It's rebirth. The, the Greek word's actually uh, palygenesia, which, which could be translated regenesis, or, or we put regeneration. It, it means an entry into a new life. 
It's what Paul is talking about when he says we are a new creation in Christ Jesus. We are reborn. It is a regenesis of our lives. There, there is in our lives now, not just the here and now, but we are united with Christ and we are united with heaven. And so we live here and now in the presence of the future. What it means to say we're citizens of the kingdom of heaven. That, 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 that has been opened up in our life and this, this principle of new life is planted within our soul. And there is something that is, is unfolded to us in our inner man that you cannot know apart from the fact that He saved us and that He mercied us. You, you can't know it in any other way. A way of seeing the world. A way of understanding it in light of not the kingdoms of this world, but the kingdom of our God and of His Christ. Regeneration. Being born again. Governing within society of you is now new. But he says this regeneration also leads to an ongoing, notice what it says, renewal of the Holy Spirit. The word renewal here means new and better. The effect of the new life. There is this work of the Spirit in our lives that is always bringing us the the new and the better. We are being changed. And one of the problems with sanctification in the Christian life is that uh, being made more like Christ is that that oftentimes the more sensitive you are to Christ, the more you see your sin. And the less you see any growth. It's why at times, most times, you need to quit just listening to yourself. Listen to the testimony of people you trust. You know, you've got your, your kid and you make the marks on the wall for their height and, and the kid just says, I haven't grown at all! And you put them up there and they've grown by that much. They don't perceive it. Well, you and I are that way often in our spiritual lives, but, but, but even more so because we have an increasing awareness of our sin, we tend to overshadow the areas of growth. And by the way, you need to be just as diligent in celebrating what God is doing in your life in areas of spiritual growth as you are in turning from areas in which you still struggle. If you don't celebrate forward progress toward Christ, what are you doing? Well, people tell me, well, I thought I'd be further along by now. Really? I thought you'd be further back. I'm surprised you are where you are. That's what I try to tell myself. You need Jesus. You need a Messiah. You're not the Messiah. Get over yourself. Celebrate any movement in spiritual growth and know that this work of renewal that is the the fruit of His sovereign grace in regenerating us is a reality in your life. And he says in verse 6, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. He points us back here to Pentecost and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And now we live in this age where there's this unique indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life. And he says, He has done that, what? Richly. Meaning abundantly. There is no need that you don't have in Christ. Stop blaming God. 
for your unwillingness to see and apply the gospel. Right? Oh, it ought to be this way and this way, and I shouldn't feel like this. No. This whole thing here is Trinitarian. The the triune God, His own mercy, the, the mercy of God the Father, the washing of regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit, outpouring of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Through, it says at the end of verse 6, through Jesus Christ our Savior. Jesus the Savior. The one who saves us is the one who mercies us. And in verse 7 it says He graced us. Look at verse 7, so that. It's a purpose clause. So that, being justified by His grace. Justified. Being declared righteous by His grace. Being declared righteous, but I'm the unrighteous. I'm a sinner. I'm guilty. Yeah. Grace. In spite of what you deserve. Not only in spite of what you deserve, but in spite of who you've offended. In spite of your Maker, your Creator. The picture here of justification is so unbelievable that God Himself is your Creator. God Himself is your Judge. God Himself made a way for salvation for you to know mercy. God Himself is the one that you come to. He is the one you've offended. It's His law that you've disobeyed. And yet He says, because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross and in the resurrection, that you, through faith in Him, can be declared righteous with the righteousness of Christ. And He will look at you for all eternity with the same affection that He has for Christ. You will be made His own because the judge that declares you righteous gets off the bench and walks you home. Do you see it? Grace! You get it that in the next phrase here. So that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs. Children with the right inheritance. You see, He doesn't just take us home. All of us have the fullness of the inheritance. We are the children of God. But notice it ties justification here to hope. The last phrase, according to the hope of eternal life. The reason for our hope is grounded in the fact that He has declared us righteous in Christ and He has taken us and adopted us into His family. He has made us His heirs. How can we do anything that is not according to eternal hope? in light of what He's done. Let me put it to you this way. Almost every single problem in your life is the result of a failure to reckon with and apply your life to the Gospel of Jesus Christ in every situation and circumstance. Almost every one. It's all about Applying our lives to the truth of what God says. It's about becoming who we are. It's not about occasionally thinking about these things. It's about making the gospel the way we see the world. It's about determining to know nothing among anyone but Christ and Him crucified. It's about taking every thought captive to obey Christ. It's about understanding that all of the Scriptures are ultimately about Christ and that our life is ultimately about Christ. All these ways in which we push this over here 
and we separate the, the gospel from it and we think about it. And, and No, we've got to keep these things together. Life is about walking out justification. It's about walking out the truth of the gospel. That's the only way you walk worthy of the gospel. Is if this truth of what God has done, He saved us, He mercied us, He graced us, affects everything you think. 31st wedding anniversary to Judy, December 19th. And I was thinking about it and writing her a note. And, and one of the things that, that I was thinking about is, I can't think of me anymore without her. I just don't. I can't. It doesn't work that way. We're supposed to be able to say, I can't think of anything anymore without thinking about Jesus and His Gospel and what He has done for me. And you, you know why He did it? The goodness and loving kindness of God. The kindness of God leads you to repentance. The goodness and loving kindness of God should produce a people who live defiantly kind. Do you see that? Do do, do you feel that? Live in opposition to the wisdom of the world. No matter how many times the world tells you that you've got to be this way and you've got to be this kind of person, you've got to step on everybody and you've got to be as harsh as you can be and and you've got to tear everything down. Uh, No matter how many times they tell you that, you just grin with a gospel defiance to say, God is true, and let everyone else be found a liar. The reason the world acts the way it does is because it is not confident. It is self-centered. Self-centeredness always leads to a lack of confidence and a hand-wringing and looking at other people. Let's, let's blame them so I can lift myself up and I'm better than that person. And it just produces this feeding frenzy on one another, which is what he says here. But what about a people who don't compromise one iota of the truth and yet so obviously are kind and care about everyone. Titus 3.8 says, the saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things, he tells Titus to these churches in Crete, so that, here's the purpose clause, those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. All of a sudden, good works are here. Now, I thought about no good works we offer God. Exactly right. Once we get that cleared away, that we're not paying a price to try to earn anything in God's sight, we are liberated to be a free people who reflect Him in the world. And one of the key ways we reflect Him, particularly with our engagements in the, uh, the, the, the silver, civil and cultural realm, is to be a people marked by this defiant kindness. Let me give you one example of it. Not weakness at all. 
Uh, Rosaria Butterfield, in her book, Secrets of an Unlikely Convert, is a woman who was a professor and uh, an ardent feminist and someone who uh, embraced homosexuality and was involved in a same-sex relationship. And, and she ended up writing a letter to uh, the local newspaper, a column where she just attacked evangelical Christianity. She said that she thought evangelical Christians were poor thinkers, judgmental, scornful, so on and so on and so on. She got tons of reactions to that. And she had two boxes, hate mail and fan mail. But there was one letter that wouldn't go in either box. It wasn't hate mail. And it wasn't fan mail. It was Pastor Ken Smith, who she says wrote her the kindest letter of opposition that she had ever received. So she called him. And she started meeting and talking with him and his wife and just coming over for meals and he would answer questions. And the kindness of God on display in the life of Pastor Ken Smith and his wife led Rosaria Butterfield to repentance. I guarantee you that there were some of those letters that were on the right side of the issues, but not in a gospel way. Who are you going to believe? The evil one or Jesus? It's about as simple as that. One of the things that Christmas ought to produce is a people that are unexplainable to the world because they are marked by a defiant kindness. Let's pray. Lord, thank You so much for Your perfect and precious Word. Thank You for everyone gathered here this morning. Thank You for the psalms, the prayers. Thank You for the words of testimony. Thank You for greetings from missionaries. And thank You, Lord. Thank You that there was a particular day and time where the goodness and loving kindness of God appeared. Thank You that He appeared that He might save us and mercy us and grace us. And so Lord, whether we're interacting with somebody from the White House to the grocery store in our neighborhood, may we reflect that truthful, defiant kindness to the glory of His name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.